Welcome to this Ubula audio presentation of a Rick Brandt science adventure story, The Wailing Octopus, by John Blaine. Volume 5, Chapter 10, The Wailing Octopus As Rick steered the water witch to its anchorage above the reef, he told Scotty about the theory he had developed that morning. He concluded, their going out to take a look where we were diving is another piece of evidence. Unless they were afraid we might be interested in their stuff, whatever and wherever that is, why would they be so concerned about what we were doing? Makes a lot of sense, Scotty agreed soberly. He looked at Rick with a sudden twinkle. Might be a good idea to take a look around down below, just so we'll know what to stay away from, of course. Rick grinned. By the time they dropped anchor, Scotty had the diving gear rigged, and it was only the work of minutes to get into the water. Each carried a spear gun in one hand and a wrecking bar in the other. Ordinarily, they would not have bothered with the guns, but being armed seemed just common sense now. On the bottom, Rick scouted around the wreck, looking for signs of its former structure, while Scotty attacked the stern with a crowbar. Under Scotty's prying, a timber suddenly gave with an audible crack, and a huge grouper that must have weighed nearly 300 pounds rushed past Rick, startling him half to death until he saw what it was. Scotty hooted in derision as Rick backpedaled. Then he put his bar down and swam to Rick's side. He scrawled on his belt slate. Where'd he come from? Rick shrugged. It was a good question. They swam slowly around looking for the grouper's hiding place and they failed to locate it. Rick knew the big fish liked caves and rocky clefts and the interiors of wrecks. This one had to have a hole somewhere. He tried again, going right down to the bottom and crawling along on his stomach, touching the sand. Even so, he might have missed the hole if stirred-up dust from the fish's sudden departure hadn't indicated where it was. The hole, big enough for him to crawl through, was under the wreck hidden by rotted planks covered with marine growth. He hooted for Scotty's attention and showed it to him. He took his belt slate and wrote, Way into ship? Scotty nodded and wrote in his own turn, Too dark, need lights. Rick nodded. For a moment, he was tempted to try ripping off the planks with his bar, but he decided against it. Any disturbance might very well collapse the entire structure. He wondered whether the hole was just a shallow opening or whether it actually led into the ship. No matter. They had watertight flashlights with their spare gear in the boat. They could find out in the next dive. For the remaining time underwater, he joined Scotty in his assault on the stern of the ship. They were rewarded by finding what was evidently the interior of a cabin. Rick ripped off another plank, then jumped as Scotty hooted four times for danger. The cabin was the home of a fairly large moray eel. Both boys dropped their bars and grabbed for their spear guns, but Scotty held up his hand and assigned a weight. Rick did so and saw the big eel emerge and swim rapidly toward the reef. Scotty had shown wisdom. The moray is hard to kill, and this one would have given them a battle that might have used up more air than they could spare. The water inside the cabin was murky. Rick looked at his watch. They had only a few minutes left. He wrote on his slate, Stay down till reserve warning. Scotty nodded agreement. 
They watched the water settle and the interior of the cabin grew clearer. Evidently, it had been a very small cabin. There was a rotted frame that might once have been a single bunk and a few broken, almost disintegrated boards that might have been a table. Mattress and bedding had long since vanished. Then Rick spotted a squarish shape under the ruin of the bunk and motioned to Scotty. They went in after it. The top crumbled under their touch, and silt rose into the water around them. But Rick persisted and felt fabric under his hands. He pulled it and recognized a seaman's jacket. Brass buttons corroded, and fabric nearly rotted through. Apparently they had found a sea chest, but their exploring hands discovered nothing but rotted fabrics. Rick felt the warning constriction that told him he had only minutes left. He pulled down the reserve lever of his tank and touched Scotty's arm. He hooted twice for the ascent. Back on the water witch, they connected their tanks to the compressor, put the regulators on charged tanks, and then tested their underwater flashlights. Rick said, Do you realize I haven't taken a single picture? Why not take some on the next dive? That's a good idea. Rick went into the cabin and brought out his camera. The camera was the same one he had adapted for night movies months before. He had built an underwater case for it from stainless steel and lucite. An intricate gear arrangement allowed him to focus or change aperture underwater, and a light meter in the rear of the case told him what setting to use. There was an ordinary inner tube valve projecting from one side to which the case could be charged with compressed air to compensate for the pressure of the water. The unit was battery-powered and had a bracket for mounting the infrared light used for night photography. He unscrewed the front of the case and took the camera from his mount. He hesitated. Do you suppose there's enough light down there for color film? There might be, Scotty replied. But you wouldn't gain much by using color. Everything would photograph in shades of green. Might as well have it in shades of gray. You got a point. Rick loaded the camera with fast black-and-white film and returned it to the case. Then he replaced the cover and disconnected the compressor long enough to pump pressure into the camera case. Ready to go, he announced. Take it easy, Scotty said. We better rest a half an hour or so. If we don't knock ourselves out, we can get in three more dives today. Rick knew the wisdom of that. He adjusted the camera and took a series of establishing shots to establish that the movie had been taken on a boat near an island. Then, when the time came to dive, he photographed Scotty and entered the water. At his direction, Scotty got out again, then Rick got in and swam down a few feet and took a shot of Scotty entering from that angle. Then the camera followed as Scotty flippers smoothly down into the deep water. Rick followed, camera extended in front of him, sighting through the gun-type sights mounted on top of the case. There was a hand grip on each side, with the controls handy to his fingers. By watching the light meter, he could change his exposure as the shifting light required. He moved ahead of Scotty, panned across the wreck, then reversed the camera to photograph Scotty approaching it. On a hunch, he stood well back when Scotty approached the underwater entrance and got a picture that was priceless. The grouper had returned to his home, and frightened by the light that suddenly probed his hideout, he flashed out and caught Scotty by surprise. Scotty dropped his flashlight and backpedaled frantically. Grinning, Rick kept his camera grinding. Scotty turned and saw that Rick was shooting and held both hands to his face in mock dismay. 
Rick cut and secured the camera to an outcropping with its safety line. Scotty picked up his light and crawled slowly into the opening. Rick waited, watching anxiously to be sure his friend's hoses and regulator cleared the entrance. Then Scotty vanished inside. In a moment, he reappeared headfirst and beckoned. Rick followed him in, his own flashlight extended. It was a little murky from the grouper's hurried departure, but he saw instantly that they were in what must have been, for those days, a large cabin. It had probably been the skipper's quarters. His light picked out the remains of furniture, including one massive chair that was still in good condition. Scotty gestured with his light, and Rick saw an oak door. He swam over to it and inspected it closely. It was still firm, still in place. Where did it lead? There was only one way to find out. He took hold of the old-fashioned handle and pulled. The door didn't budge. Rick tried again and failed again. He swung himself around and put both feet on the wall next to the door and then applied leverage. The handle came completely off. Rick sailed backwards across the cabin and his tank rang like a bell as it struck something metallic. Scotty hurried to his side and Rick gestured that he was all right. They turned and inspected the object against which Rick had hurtled and found that it was the still sound strap for a beam, probably made of wrought iron. Rick took his belt slate and wrote, Where would he hide it? Scotty read it with his light and shrugged, then began a methodical inspection of the cabin, surprised that it was so clear of marine life. Rick surmised that the opening had developed only recently perhaps from the shifting of the ship. They found a closet and a heap of what had once been clothes on the floor. Then Scotty made the big discovery of the day. He reached into a shelf space above the bunk, hand-exploring, and touched something. He drew it out. It looked like a green-covered bundle about a foot long and two inches thick. But before he had a chance to inspect it further, his air gave out, and both boys hurried to the surface on their reserves. Aboard the water witch, they shed their equipment and sat down to inspect Scotty's find. The covering proved to be layer after layer of oilcloth wrapped around the object. The outer layers had deteriorated somewhat, but the inner ones were intact. Scotty finished unwrapping and found a second wrapping of still dry linen. He pulled the linen off, and both boys gasped. It was a jeweled dagger with a good-sized ruby winking in its hilt. Take it out of its sheath, Rick suggested. Scotty did so and disclosed a blade covered with some hard brown substance. That's not rust. You got a jackknife? Rick found one and handed it to him. Scotty scraped and was rewarded by the gleam of bright metal. It must have been coated with heavy grease, Rick remarked. During the years, the grease hardened into a permanent rust-proof coating. Wait until the scientists see this. Scotty grinned his pleasure. This is one treasure the log didn't mention. Poor Captain Campion must have thought a lot of it to protect it so thoroughly. He might have been taking it to the New World as a gift for an influential friend, Rick ventured. Looks like Spanish work. Scotty looked at Rick speculatively. Are you making a claim on this? Rick knit his brows. What was Scotty driving at? You found it, he said. Technically, we're supposed to share and share alike. The four of us and Barbie. 
How do you split a dagger? And we wouldn't sell it anyway. It's too nice of a souvenir. I'll ask Tony and Zircon, but if none of you have any objection, I'd like to claim it because I want to give it to Dad for a birthday present next month. Rick punched him on the arm. Yeah, you'll get no objection from me, or Tony, or Zircon for that matter. I could buy presents for the family. I do, on birthdays and Christmas. But I've always wanted to give Dad something special. Something to tell him how I feel about being taken into your family. Rick nodded. He knew how Scotty felt, and he liked him all the better for it. Let's get ready for the next dive, he said abruptly. They went through the necessary checks on their equipment, transferring regulators to the third set of tanks. Rick decided to leave the camera on the boat this time. He was anxious to inspect the ship thoroughly, and photography took time. After a half an hour of rest, the boys went back into the water again, carrying their wrecking bars and spear guns, flashlights on their belts. An inch-by-inch inspection of the cabin disclosed no more treasures, but Rick found a plate still intact. He wondered if it was the plate from which the captain had last dined before the pirate attack and put it outside the entrance to be carried to the surface. Once satisfied, the cabin held no more secrets. The boys attacked the door. It was hard work, and they raised so much dust that their light beams were almost useless. However, they struggled on until the door finally gave, only to admit quantities of sand. Rick guessed that the door had opened onto a deck that was now buried far under the sand. They went outside to allow the murkiness to settle in the cabins, and Rick consulted his watch. Their time was nearly up. He hooted to Scotty, and they surfaced. The first tanks they had used were ready now. They shifted regulators and hooked up another pair to the compressor. I'm afraid Tony was right, Rick said. We'll have to take the ship apart piece by piece if we want to find anything there. Scotty examined his foot where the fin was rubbing a little. What would be a logical hiding place? If I were the captain, I'd probably hide the statue under the false flooring or something. Anyway, I'd hide it aft, in the officer's country, and not near the forecastle where the crew lived. Oh, that's probably right. Anyway, we won't have time to do much wrecking today. What say we hunt for loose boards of the cabin? Scotty grinned. The treasure fever has got our boy Rick. Have you forgotten we were going to see what those fancy frogmen were curious about? Rick grinned back, a little sheepishly. You're right, I had forgotten. Well, we can spend half the time looking for the treasure, and the other half looking for the frogmen's cash. The search for the treasure disclosed no loose boards, or anything resembling a secret hiding place. At the end of ten minutes, they turned from the wreck and swam along the bottom toward the reef. Since they had no idea what they were looking for, the search couldn't be a very carefully planned one. Rick led the way following the reef, taking time to examine the coral formations. There were countless sea urchins and enough small fish to feed the entire population. Bigger fish, however, were not plentiful. Once Rick saw a snook that would have been worth taking, but the fish sped off into the watery gloom. Again, Scotty called his attention to a deadly scorpion fish. This small, rather weird-looking creature had a dangerous defense mechanism in the spines on its back. His poison bore a strong enough resemblance to cobra venom, 
that it was incredibly dangerous. The boys gave him a wide berth. Now and then a moray glared at them with unwinking eyes from a crevice, but the boys paid no attention. The mores would not attack unless disturbed, and there was no reason for disturbing them. Rick wondered if the big one they had ousted from the wreck had found a new home. They passed a colony of sea worms, colorful even in the green light. The worms were pretty, but their long hairs could give a painful sting. Their time was growing short. Rick consulted his watch, then his depth gauge. They were at 85 feet. Because of the shallower water, they would have a little more time, perhaps another five minutes before constricted breathing told them only a few minutes of air remained. Scotty found a puffer and waved at him, but the fish paid no attention. Scotty motioned to Rick, then reached out and scratched the creature's stomach. It began to gulp water until it resembled a balloon. They left it to return to normal in its own time. On the surface, the puffer would have gulped air in the same way. They had caught them on lines many times. They were past the water witch now, Rick estimated. He hooted at Scotty, then led the way to the depth of about 40 feet. Then he started back along the cliff. Suddenly, he wished he had brought a game bag attached to his belt. The reef was alive with shellfish. He identified cowries and whelks and some excellent specimens of Triton's horn. They would have to come back again to collect some to take home. The biggest problem was getting the animals out of their shells, unless there were some anthills on the island. Ants would do the job neatly in a few days. Scotty hooted again and pointed. Directly ahead was a small shelf. Rick moved to Scotty's side and saw the dark opening of a cave. Next to the opening was a small octopus. As they approached, he changed color, trying to imitate the multicolored coral against which he rested. Rick reached out a hand, and the animal retreated, sliding into the mouth of the cave. Apparently this was his home, because the ledge was littered with shells for a number of meals. Now Rick wished for his camera, and he smiled inwardly. To satisfy all his unexpected wishes, he would need a sort of underwater trailer to tow all his gear. Scotty moved closer to the octopus and retreated still further. Both boys knew the creatures were harmless to divers, and some divers even handled them. But there were reports of divers being bitten while playing with octopuses, and they had learned long ago that unnecessary risks were foolish. Rick suddenly rocked back as his ears were smitten by a sound, a wail that echoed in his head so intensely that it almost hurt. Scotty started too and reached for the ledge in his astonishment. The octopus peered out of the cave and the whale came again, buzzing uncomfortably in their heads. And in that moment, Rick's air gave out. He pulled the reserve lever and planed to the surface, Scotty close to his heels. On the water which they stared at each other. Did you hear that? Scotty demanded. I'll say I did. That octopus, he wailed. Scotty insisted. Twice! He hesitated, then put Rick's thoughts into words. Only, octopuses don't do that. They don't make any noise at all. Well, this one looked like it did, Rick said. A wailing octopus? This is either a new scientific find, or, or we found what the fancy frogmen don't want us to find, Scotty concluded.
Chapter 11 Lights on Clipper Reef This is a phenomenon that will rock the science of zoology to its very depths, Hobart Zukan boomed. We will examine this creature and determine his genus and species, and we will name him after you two. Octopus Welly Bronte Scotty. Or perhaps Octopus Screamy would be better. Of course, we're not certain that it was a whale, Rick said soberly. He might have been singing. He might even have been telling us to go catch him a fish. Tony Briotti observed, This may not be an isolated phenomenon. Who knows? A search may disclose a screaming squid or simpering sharks or maybe burbling barracuda. Seriously, have either of you a theory to account for this? Zircon asked. Or do you really believe that the octopus wailed? We'd be in a better position to answer that if we'd had a chance to explore the cave, Scotty replied. How can we tell? Maybe the octopus really did wail, and we were the lucky ones who heard the sound for the first time. He grinned. We should have wailed back and tried to strike up a conversation. Rick agreed. I'm with Scotty. We just don't know. I agree, a wailing octopus is a new kind of beast, but that's not entirely impossible, is it? Perhaps not. Tony stared at the sunset. I'm trying to recall the physiology of octopus vulgaris, as the garden variety of octopus is called. But my memory isn't working. It isn't beyond reason. After all, some fish make sounds. I've caught croakers myself that were pretty noisy but I've never heard of octopus sounds until now. Scotty chuckled. Haven't I read that octopuses have some intelligence? We might teach him to sing. He'd be a natural for television. You say the sound was loud? Tony asked. Very loud. My head hurt. Did yours, Scotty? I'll say, for a minute, I thought my brain cells were rubbing together. Zircon sighed. I'm stumped. And not only by your wailing willy, either. This whole affair is baffling me, including the presence of Steve's former tail on this island. Hasn't it occurred to you that those fancy frogmen, as you call them, would have made some overt move by now if they were really interested in us? Wasn't dropping the chicken an overt move? Rick asked. Yes and no. I'd prefer to call it a not-too-subtle warning. Yet they haven't tried to interfere with your diving around the wreck. I've wondered about that, Scotty offered. Seems to me they're satisfied that our interest is just in the wreck, and not in whatever they've hidden underwater. If they have anything hidden, I mean. As long as we stick to the wreck, they have no reason for causing trouble. Tony agreed. That makes sense to me. Perhaps you can answer this. Why do they wear cold water suits? It's appreciably cooler at 20 fathoms, but it's certainly not cold enough for a suit. Well, we only stay down for 15 minutes, Scotty observed. If we stay down longer, we might get chilled. The water isn't warm by any means down by the wreck. Rick had a thought. We're used to cold water, remember? Diving off Spindrift would chill a polar bear, even in summer. Suppose these people had done all their diving in tropic waters. This water would seem cold to them, particularly down deep. It was nearly dark now, only a glimmer of light in the west. 
The four sat on the front porch of the cottage. Zircon asked, Did you monitor the radio tonight, Rick? Yes, but there was no word from Steve. Don't you think he might like to know about the presence of his shadow on Clippa Key? Tony inquired. Rick pointed to the sky wagon resting on the beach. The trouble is, that's our only communication. I could contact the St. Thomas Airport and request that they pass a message along, but that would be like broadcasting it to the whole world. Steve wouldn't like that. Zircon's deep voice cut into his comment. Look at that. Our friends are apparently going to do some night work. There were lights on the frogman's boat, and it was putting out. As the spin drifters watched, it slowly approached the reef, then stopped. Scotty got out the field glasses and examined the scene. Well, something's up, he exclaimed. I saw a diver go over the side. Hobart Zircon coughed self-consciously. Do you know I have taken a certain amount of pride in the fact that I am by nature a conservative individual with a highly developed capacity for minding my own business? Rick wondered what on earth the big scientist was getting at. The pursuit of truth has led me along many devious routes. Zircon continued. I have tried, with some success and many failures, to plumb the mysteries of nature. But while I have tried to make the business of our natural universe my own, I have never thrust my not inconsiderable nose into the business of my neighbors. However, this admirable reticence has limits since, as a scientist, I am also possessed of that inherent trait of curiosity, without which no person can succeed in science. Rick exploded into laughter. And what you're leaning up to is, you want to go see what those people are doing. Precisely, Zircon admitted. Tony and the boys roared with laughter. Hobart, you never failed to astonish me. Tony said with a chuckle. And how do you propose to stick your not inconsiderable nose into the business that's now going on over there? Zircon waved his hand. The method was developed by young Mr. Brandt, who shows slight sparks of intelligence. He has a device which projects infrared light and glasses that allow the wearer to see whatever that light illuminates. Rick stared. Zircon was proposing that they take their underwater camera and use it for illumination. That had a mean. You want to swim over with the lungs? He asked incredulously. Why not? But we've never done any night diving. You tested the camera at night, didn't you? Yeah, Rick admitted. But that was water we knew, off Pirate's Field at home. And we only stayed in long enough to expose a few feet of film. We know enough about these waters to know there are no dangerous obstructions beyond the reef, at least between here and the maiden hand. Scotty laughed. This is a day I never thought would come. It's usually the other way around, with Rick trying to sell some idea that everybody else opposes. Why not swim at night, Rick? No reason, I guess, Rick admitted. It was just that it hadn't occurred to me. There's one difficulty, though. I only have two pairs of glasses with infrared-sensitive lenses, so only two of us could go. Yeah, only two could die with the camera, 
Tony corrected. But all of us could go. Two would remain on the surface with the floats in case of trouble. Who would dive and who would stay on the surface? Scotty demanded. Rick produced a quarter. Let the coins decide. Except for the professor. He thought of it, so he dives. Fair enough, Scotty agreed. All right with you, Tony? Of course. The three of us, then. Odd man goes with Hobart. Tony and Scotty produced coins. With Rick, they walked into the living room and lit a kerosene lamp. Now, Rick said, and tossed his coin, catching it in the palm of his hand and slapping it onto his other wrist. Tony and Scotty followed suit. Rick uncovered first. He had heads. Tony uncovered and displayed tails. Scotty groaned. Shucks, I lose. It's one of you. Rick held his breath as Scotty uncovered another tail. He turned to Zircon. We dive while Scotty and Tony stay topside. Good. Well, what are we waiting for? They changed quickly into trunks, then assembled their diving gear. Rick took the front plate from his camera and put the infrared searchlight in its mounting bracket. He changed to a fresh battery, then replaced the film in the camera with the special infrared-sensitive film. Whatever the infrared illuminated could be seen through special glass. Rick had ordered lenses ground from the glass and had placed them in frames made to fit into a face mask. These frames could be purchased at any diving supply house. They had been designed for divers who had to wear their own corrective lenses, and they suited Rick's purpose to perfection. He handed a pair to Hobart Zircon, then inserted the other pair in his own mask. Zircon, Tony, and Scotty decided to take spear guns. Zircon chose Rick's rubber-powered gun, while Tony selected the light spring gun. Scotty chose the highest power gun they had, a new jet-type powered with carbon dioxide. Rick and Zircon connected their regulators to two freshly filled tanks, then tested the equipment. Zircon tied a rope to his belt. The big scientist drew them together for a brief conference. We'll swim out and cross the reef. Then we'll swim along the reef, staying as close as possible to the breakers. They'll help conceal us. When we approach the boat, Tony and Scotty will stop and hold position. Scotty, are the binoculars waterproof? Yep, they are. Then take them. Rick and I will go directly to the bottom at the base of the reef. We will then proceed along the reef until we spot our friends yonder. Rick had an unhappy thought. Suppose they see us. We will try to prevent them from seeing us. However, if they do, I suggest a retreat in as good an order as we can manage. If they should catch up with us, we will bluster and bluff our way on the basis that we were only diving to see if they were trying to search our wreck. Scotty laughed. Turn the tables on them for that. That's a good idea, Professor. I'm glad I'm not a physicist, Tony said piously. We archaeologists aren't half so devious. I am acting in my capacity as a former consultant to Yannig and not as a physicist. Sircon retorted with dignity. You'll refrain from casting aspersions on my profession, Dr. Briotti. My apologies, Tony said, grinning. In other words, the man is devious, but the scientist is not. <laughs>
Exactly. All right, shall we go? Rick was glad to get into the water. The camera in its underwater case was heavy in the air, but weighed only a few ounces in the water. He swam with face mask under, breathing through his snorkel and letting the camera hang. They crossed the reef without difficulty, then turned to swim along it. The trough, just seaward of the breaking point of the waves, was the most comfortable swimming position, and they went in single file, Zircon leading. Every now and then, Rick looked up. They were getting near the boat, he thought, perilously near. The boat was anchored just inside the reef, and he could see activity on its deck. Apparently, the frogmen had returned from their first dive and were changing tanks. Zircon stopped swimming and lay motionless in the water. Rick drew abreast of the big scientist, and Tony and Scotty stopped behind them. As they watched, suited figures with belt lights and back tanks climbed down a ladder and into the water. A third man on the deck lowered something to them. It was hard to see, but Rick thought it had a golden glisten, and that it was round and about the size of a basketball. The frogman took it and went under. Zircon's big hand took Rick by the shoulder. Then he turned and motioned to the others that they were going under. Rick shifted from snorkel to aqualung mouthpiece. He took the end of the rope that Zircon held out and snapped it to his weight belt. He and Zircon were now connected by a ten-foot length of rope, necessary to keep them from becoming separated in the darkness. He submerged and dove straight down into the blackness. His thumb compressed the button on the side of the case, and the camera started, the infrared light turning on. A narrow cone of water, extending about twenty feet, was illuminated, but the illumination was visible only through the special glasses he and Zircon wore. Rick held the button until they reached the bottom, then suddenly realized he would use up all his film before they'd even found the frogmen. He groaned silently. Why hadn't he used his head? The light as well as the camera motor were operated by the same button. If he had only thought, it would have only been a few seconds' work to change the circuit so the light would be on continuously, or he might even be able to rig a waterproof switch that would operate just the light. Well, it was too late now. He jerked on the rope for Zircon to stop, then took his belt slate and wrote, Cam on when light is on. We'll use now and then. He held it in the beam of infrared light for Zircon to read. The scientist scribbled OK under the message and then gave him a gentle push as the signal to go ahead. Rick held his wrist in the beam and read 92 feet on his depth gauge. He calculated quickly. They would have enough air for about 25 minutes at that depth. He held the camera switch long enough to see that there was only smooth bottom ahead, and then he released it. Almost total blackness flooded in. For all practical purposes, it was completely dark, no glimmer of light to mark their way. For an instant, Rick felt panic, but reason reasserted itself. It was instinctive to feel fear under such circumstances, he thought. Not only was he out of his own medium, air, but in a high-pressure realm inhabited by potentially dangerous creatures. He grinned inwardly at the thought. The most dangerous creatures in this vicinity were human, not fish. A twinkle of light stopped him, but Zircon continued on, and the connecting line tightened. 
Rick identified the twinkle as phosphorescence from some marine creature on the reef. There were many such in the ocean. He flashed the infrared light and saw that they were still headed properly, and they cut it off again. The rope at his belt tugged four times for danger. He stopped instantly, letting go of the camera with one hand while he reached for his belt knife. Then he saw what Zircon had seen, a glow in the water ahead and above them. Rick estimated quickly the distance they had traveled. There was no doubt about it. The frogmen were at the octopus cave. He followed Zircon's lead, cutting the light off and on as necessary as the big scientist moved ahead. The glow grew in intensity, but they were still too far away to see its exact position or whether there were men around it. Rick's heart beat faster, and his breathing sped up appreciably. In spite of Zircon's plan to claim that they were only checking on the frogmen's interest in the wreck, Rick knew that being discovered would mean serious trouble. He recalled Steve's warning that they were up against a ruthless enemy. The question was, how close could they get without being seen? He could take pictures at ten feet, but any greater distance and a camera would be useless. Zircon moved ahead, going slowly now. Rick followed, not bothering with the dark light, because the glow in the water was enough for a beacon. Then the glow faded for a moment as a figure crossed in front of it. Still, Zircon moved ahead until Rick could see two additional smaller glows that he identified as the belt lights the frogmen had been wearing. Zircon continued on, still hugging the bottom, and Rick divined his intentions. The big scientist was going to take them directly under the frogmen. Well, that was logical, because the frogmen were not expecting danger below. Rick followed, staying just behind Zircon's flippers, feeling the wash of the water from his wake. The light was nearly overhead now, and Rick saw dark figures moving. It was unreal, like a Hollywood motion picture, except that the tense music of a movie production was replaced only by the soft sighing of the regulators. And with the thought, Rick almost lost his mouthpiece. They're bubbles! Their bubbles would rise right past the frogmen. That was a dead giveaway. It might already be too late, because Zircon was almost directly under the cave. <laughs>